from PRX. Stew. 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 Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Well, don't be sniffy about I'm not pens. being sniffy. I think I'm you a, are. No, no. You've got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show... I cannot sing like you, but I, did, I just wanted to show... My appreciation. Music is bigger than politics. We sort of know what his taste is, according to hotel lobbies. Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay. Sit. I'm thrilled the White House called me tonight uh, because I'm actually working on a hip-hop album. Uh, It's a concept album about the life of someone I think embodies hip-hop, Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton. This is Lin-Manuel Miranda in 2009 when that seemed like a joke. You laugh, but it's true. Uh, So uh, I'm going to be doing the first song from that tonight. uh, And snap along if you like. How does a bastard orphan son of a whore and a Scotsman dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in More than five years before his musical Hamilton opened and became one of the great cultural works of this century, Lin-Manuel Miranda did kind of a workshop performance for the president at the White House. A lot smarter by being a self-starter by 14. They placed him in charge of the trade and charter. This past year, he was back there with the whole cast. The truth is, though, they they do owe me. This is at that encore performance in the East Room. Not to take undue credit or anything, but this is definitely the room where it happened. What's your name, man? Alexander Hamilton. No president has brought more pop music marquee firepower to Pennsylvania Avenue. In just the last year, Common, the Lumineers, Usher, Kendrick Lamar, Janelle Monet, The Roots, The Dap Kings, Blake Shelton, Esperanza Spalding, all of them, and more. In fact, for eight years, Barack Obama really brought his passions as a real fan to his duties as tastemaker-in-chief. Not just in music, but TV shows and literature. Culture was an important part of this presidency. Obama, you always wanted to know what the book was next to his bed and, and what was on his iPod, right? Jeff Edgers is the national arts reporter for The Washington Post. And um, I don't think we had that before. And and when he would uh, visit the bookstore on Martha's Vineyard or in Washington, D.C., everybody would be fascinated by, oh, whose book did he buy? And it seemed not like a setup job. It seemed legitimate. Well, it's like Oprah's book club. I mean, she would also put her stamp of approval on it. And that shifted things. It changed things. The Obamas also carefully chose the paintings that would hang on the walls of their White House. They started by looking through the work that was close at hand. But... The permanent collection of the White House was not um, going to necessarily check all the boxes of the things that appealed to the Obamas. Dana Miller was a senior curator at the Whitney Museum of Art. She says the White House collection has lots of what you'd expect, 18th and 19th century portraits of distinguished white guys. 
the Obamas wanted to be surrounded by art that reflected more of their experience um, in the 20th century. Um, the Obamas were frequent visitors to the Art Institute of Chicago. They had a, their first date there. So they borrowed different pieces from various museums. They were looking to create a more diverse group of artists represented. So women, artists of color. We're so excited about the Alma Thomas piece. It's Resurrection. Alma Thomas is the first African-American female uh, artist to be shown here at the White House. Michelle Obama giving a tour to the Today Show correspondent Jenna Bush Hager, one of George W.'s daughters. You were the first first lady to modernize a room in the White House. It's a pretty bold move. It's kind of unbelievable that we haven't done this before because modern art and design is such an important part of the American tradition. In the American tradition, Edward Hopper is Barack Obama's favorite painter. So his people called up the Whitney Museum, which has more hoppers than any museum on earth. And Dana Miller arranged for two paintings to be loaned and hung in the Oval Office. They're portraits of Barnes in muted greens and browns. It was this kind of amazing moment in that the light in the painting was mimicked by the light that was coming in the windows of the Oval Office at the same time, kind of the same direction, the same slant. And I get kind of a great rush when I see photographs of, of the president in the Oval Office having a meeting with, I don't know, the Pope or with John Kerry or somebody, and you can just see it in the background. Um, you know, it's one of those details people absorb but might not notice, but becomes, I think, an important part of the history of this country. In fact, there's a familiar picture of the president staring at the two paintings that hang in his office. And some less well-known photos. Sometimes I, I get forwarded photographs of the president throwing a football in the Oval Office, and I sort of pretend like I don't see it. The Obamas were really pop culture figures more than anything, not just conveners of performers at the White House, but more than any predecessors, performers, while he was in office. Through the actions of my administration, we were able to stimulate the economy and get our country back on track. Oh, yeah. Like slow jamming the news on The Tonight Show. President Obama stimulated long-term growth. Or the time he sat between two ferns with Zach Galifianakis. I have to know, what is it like to be the last black president? Seriously? Or one of my other favorites, where the first lady rode around in a car with James Corden and Missy Elliott and sang about empowering girls. That's at the Apollo Theater in Harlem in 2012 when he was running for re-election, singing Al Green in front of the actual Reverend Al Green. Don't worry, Rev, I, I cannot sing like you, but I, didn't, I just wanted to show my appreciation. Doing that song was a campaign stunt, but singing it so well himself was pretty amazing. The Obamas used their platform to put African-Americans center stage, especially musicians. The Washington Post's Jeff Edger says that's great, all those celebrations of pop culture, 
On the other hand, he has not gone to the National Gallery, uh, you know, once. And that's a huge departure. I mean, Laura Bush would go over there more than a dozen times. You know, they didn't participate in a fundraiser for the Ford Theater, which might not seem like a huge deal, but it's something that's done by all presidents. And it, they ended up canceling their fundraiser because he, the White House didn't have time to host anything. Um, why not a 45-minute walkthrough you know, uh, the National Gallery, or uh, why not take in a symphony? Um, why not do something very publicly that endorses that thing and, and delivers a message that this is cool too? Then there was the actual governance in these areas. Obama took more than a year to replace the chair of his National Endowment for the Arts. He did do something new called the Turnaround Arts Initiative, a program for poor schools. But so far, that program serves exactly 68 of those schools. I asked Jeff Edgers what he thinks was Obama's single biggest success in the arts and culture realm. Uh, I don't want to uh, downplay the importance of, of what he did. But I mean, I think in all, if you're going to pick one thing that, that happened during this time is he basically was the greatest party host we've ever had. You know, uh, we knew that uh, if there was an event, a party, an opening, uh, whatever, a concert, the right people are going to be playing, the right people are going to be uh, speaking, the right books were going to be read. We just knew that this guy understood culture. And it made us, you know, it, for those of us who love good art, it made us proud. The people who performed at the White House were proud, too. Hey, now, I'm Bobby Watson, saxophonist, composer, band leader, educator, and producer. He played last spring at the White House at the International Jazz Day. We knew from day one that the Obamas loved music, rhythm and blues, jazz, hip-hop. I mean... It's part of their life. It's part of their fabric. And I felt like I was at home. Music is bigger than politics. And so when a president brings in music, he is connecting so many people, more than the greatest speech he could ever give. That just cuts across all barriers, and it brings us together. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. Obama is plainly moved by music, and when he sang, he could be very moving himself. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saves. This was a remarkable moment. It was at the memorial service for the Reverend Clementa Pinckney, one of the nine people shot dead in the church in Charleston. People dream when they listen to music. People reminisce when they listen to music. People cry when they listen to music. They laugh. That's what music does. And so I saw in Michelle and Barack, they have that. In other words, they showed they could really feel other people's joy and pain. One of my favorite Obama moments did not get such big press. 
It was in 2015 in Des Moines. Well, the, uh, as you know, I've told you this, I love your books. He visited the great novelist Marilyn Robinson just to talk for an hour. Are you somebody who worries about people not reading novels anymore? They discussed American history and Christianity and optimism and fiction. The most important stuff I've learned, I think I've learned from novels, right? It has to do with empathy. It has to do with uh, being comfortable with the, uh, the notion that the world's complicated and full of grays, but there's still truth there to be found. Complicated and full of grays. That's one thing that pretty much all art is about. But there was one performance this year that stunned me. It, it sank its hooks in my heart. Not because it was good. It was, there was nothing good about it. Last week at the Golden Globes, they gave Meryl Streep a Lifetime Achievement Award. But it was effective and it did its job. It made its intended audience laugh and show their teeth. Without ever mentioning the next president by name, she devoted her whole speech to him. It was that moment when the person asking to sit in the most respected seat in our country imitated a disabled reporter. And I still can't get it out of my head because it wasn't in a movie. It was real life. Inevitably, first thing the next morning, the president-elect of the United States got on Twitter and reacted, and reacted again and again. Meryl Streep, one of the most overrated actresses in Hollywood, doesn't know me but attacked last night at the Golden Globes. She is a Hillary flunky who lost big. It's an honor to be asked to perform for a president at the White House. So far, Bobby Watson, the jazz musician, has played for two presidents. The last two, Barack Obama and George W. Bush. If Trump was to ask me to play in the White House at this time, I would have to decline. I'm going to give him a chance to transcend and take on the gravity of the office of the president of the United States. And if he does do this and realizes the position that God has given him and proves to be someone we didn't think he was, I might play. But right now, today, no. Later on in the show, we'll talk about how the Trump administration may affect American arts and culture. But when it comes to the way Washington dresses, the fashion writer Central Wilson says she already sees what's coming. All of the Republicans adopted this style code that I like to call contemporary fascist chic. I mean, where you have the uh, sort of charcoal gray, slightly baggy, not too uh, clean cut like Obama's suits. That's up next in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC.
we've been told we're not ready or that we shouldn't try or that we can't, generations of Americans have responded with a simple creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Where were you eight years ago today? I had just arrived in Los Angeles for a semester teaching college and had just started to write my third novel. In a lot of ways, life wasn't all that different. But looking back now, that time does have kind of a glow. Barack Obama was about to become the first black president of the United States, a piece of the American dream fulfilled way before anybody thought that would happen. In L.A., like in Brooklyn, where I live most of the time, people were feeling sort of giddy. Things seemed possible. The Shepherd Ferry poster that said hope on it kind of uh, said it all for people of my demographic. I mean, it was a radical shift. It was so exciting. I mean, he was young. He was, you know, such a beautiful speaker. And it was it just seemed like a big radical shift from, uh, you know, the eight years of Republican squalor that we had had before it. At the time, the opinionated Central Wilson was writing about fashion for the New York Times. So, I mean, I, people were very optimistic and also very afraid for him. I remember being uh, really terrified for Obama because it seemed like uh, eight years ago there was a lot of sort of racism coming up from the Tea Party and people were attending town hall meetings with uh, assault rifles just to show that they could. And it was a very tense time, I mean, because we, we kind of felt like he was our Kennedy. He was our generation's Kennedy, and we were terrified that somebody was going to hurt him. Back in 2009, uh, we asked you and some other people to leave voicemails uh, for then-President-elect Barack Obama, and I want to play you a bit of yours. <laughs> okay. Next message. Hi, President-elect Obama. This is Cintra Wilson, critical shopper for The New York Times. I just want to say you are such a stylish man, and... I love you almost completely unconditionally. I have a couple of favors to ask. I know you are busy, but if you could see your way around to renouncing the theory of the unitary executive and making the executive office accountable to American law again, that would be so awesome. Just throw away all of the outgoing president's signing statements and all those skeevy presidential and security directives, like with a set of fire tongs, because they left so many cooties all over the Constitution. Oh, and it might be a nice bipartisan gesture to rebuild the Nixon bowling alley. I am just saying, do you feel me? I know you do, because you're my president. All right, baby. Have a rockin' good inauguration, Mr. Smokin' Hot Presidentialityness. Mwah! Bye. Uh, no, interesting, eight years later. How does that strike you? Very optimistic, I'd have to say. I mean, um, I had been looking with mm -hmm. a real forensic microscope at, like, why is politics messed up? I mean, what are the things that uh, people like me aren't really realizing? What's the boring but important stuff that's really going down? And um, right. I drove myself really batty behind that for a while just because uh, the concentration of executive powers under the Bush administration was so heinous um, and so extreme that I thought, well, OK, maybe Obama isn't going to abuse it, but it's imminently abusable if we ever get a complete freak into the presidency. And that's 
you know, it's got to be somewhere down the line. It, it just happened a lot sooner than I, than I thought it would. <laughs> well, ironically, of course, uh, um, the, the thing during the Obama administration, as one could argue and as I think, uh, he, you know, he had such an uncooperative, let, let, let us say, uh, Republican Congress that he, in fact, did a lot of things by executive fiat. I mean, so he it, – it's so interesting. I was, it was amazing to me to hear this pull up from the archives, this thing you said eight years ago about, you know, uh, things being done by executive action. Well, you know, my gosh – our man Obama certainly did that. We just liked the things he did. I I think you're absolutely right. I mean, here's the the caveat, though. The thing that I feel like, you know, the elephant under the carpet, as it were, <laughs> I do not believe that Obama, given like a different house in Congress, would have needed <laughs> those potentially abusable powers. But he was facing such dire opposition, his entire right. presidency. Right. But, I mean, it was just, you know, swimming upstream the whole time. Right. Now, of course, we're going to have somebody who gets to, you know, floor the gas and let go of the steering wheel at the same time. <laughs> um, so, in addition, now, listeners who are just tuning in will think, oh, she's she's a political uh, pundit. That's all she is. But, of course, you are more than that. You are a, a one of my favorite uh, fashion and style uh, experts of all time. I, I'm trying. I mean, to me, they, they are. I mean, I was a child, little toddler when when Kennedy was president. But but the Obamas are the most certainly most stylish presidential couple since then. And 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 as you as you have watched them, as I'm sure you have these last eight years, and like how they move and what they how they dress and all that. Um, what 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 do their clothes say about them? I believe that they were sending a very international message. Um, it was one of relaxed authority, uh, sophistication, uh, like familiarity with European style and customs. They can sit in any castle or parliament or uh, any political institution in the world and look like themselves, you know, with their signature elegance and their hipness and their open-mindedness. And uh, I just think that they were so effective in terms of like being ambassadors of what is best, uh, you know, not just in America, but right. in mankind. Right. Uh, rootless cosmopolites. Yes. No, I agree with you. And and, and they were – and even in as dressed formally, there was a, a kind of uh, a lack of stiffness in that kind of uh, helmet yeah. hair play acting stuff that passes for, uh, you know, formal – for sort of head of state formality so often. Yeah, if you think about like the stiffness and yeah. the falsehoods and the, you know, the 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 rigidity, which I think is also a psychological mm. rigidity. I mean, we get back to psychology in clothing. And I think that you see like, you know, the Obamas look like they have yes. oxygen. You know, they look like they have yes. space. They look like they understand comfortable themselves. In skin, and absolutely comfortable in their skin. And they also feel psychologically yeah. comfortable. You know, they are just... I mean, I, I can't stop gushing about the Obamas. I've <laughs> yeah. just been in love with them since day one. I mean, I knew I loved Michelle Obama forever when on her inauguration night, 
she wore this original Narciso Rodriguez, which was actually yeah. a, a dress she got really panned for in the in the media. But it, it looked sort of like a bloody French maid costume, which right. I thought was really ironic. Like, look, we're coming in to clean up the country now. I mean, I don't know if she intended that joke or not, but I thought it was really sophisticated. And, and I watched her ever since and just, you know, in awe. Uh, Michelle Obama, in addition to the Narciso Rodrigo uh, thing, and um, oh, Isabel Toledo, uh, uh, oh, beautiful sure. dress she wore. Uh, was she? Did she? Did she do right? I mean, did she say? Did she choose the right designers to wear, and thereby make you know some correct message that we should be happy about? Oh, correct. I don't know if it was. Um, what I really admired the most about Michelle Obama's fashion choices is the fact that it wasn't always considered correct. You know, yeah. people would kind yeah. of occasionally go into a great kerfuffle over, you know, the fact that her beautiful arms were showing or, oh, you know, I mean, she just she seemed so uh, threateningly radical to people yeah. who wanted everybody to dress like Lady Bird Johnson. And and Obama has I mean that man can wear a suit like nobody's business. He's, he always just looks like the extra, you know, the the other member of the Rat Pack who yeah. is just you know as cool as Sinatra. Um, I want to I want to play for you uh, a bit of an interview that uh, Barack Obama um, did with uh, Meredith Vieira. Um, after he was called out famously um, for wearing dad jeans. Oh boy. You are married to one of the most fashionable right. women in the world. Yes. You want to defend the pants. No. I, here's, no. Here, here, here's my attitude. Uh, Michelle, uh, she looks fabulous. Uh, I'm a little frumpy. You know, uh, basically, it, uh, up until a few years ago, uh, I only had four suits. She used to tease me because they'd get really shiny. <laughs> I hate to shop. Uh, those jeans are comfortable. And uh, for those of you who, you know, want your president to... You know, look great in his tight jeans. I'm sorry, I'm not the guy. So no low riders. Sorry, That's, yeah, it doesn't. It, it just doesn't fit me. I'm not 20. Um, <laughs> I mean, the fact that he addressed it in this, you know, honest way. He 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 is not a frumpy fella. Oh heavens, no! I mean, I th- I think he was he had his tongue in his cheek there. I mean, dad jeans are pretty much the only thing a Republican can respectably wear in Washington D.C. Anything else, you're just you know you're going to look a little too Italian. Or or <laughs> frankly, somebody over forty or fifty. I mean, really. I mean, you know, quote unquote dad jeans. I mean, what 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 is somebody fifty supposed to wear? Oh yeah, I mean, he has to deal with the military all the time. It's not like he can yeah. go around in some kind of like seven for all mankind rhinestone pocketed Ed Hardy, uh, you know. Bootleg. <laughs> okay, so Donald Trump. He's 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 he. Moment, we're moments away from him being president. Um, what about? I mean, just just trying to be objective. What about his fashion sense? What do you make of it? All of the Republicans adopted this style code that I like to call contemporary fascist chic. I mean, where you have the uh, sort of charcoal gray, slightly baggy, not too uh, clean cut like Obama's suits, uh, sort of boxy, uh, charcoal gray with a bright red silk tie and a white shirt. But, okay, the baseball hat. Now, the baseball hat was an interesting choice because I, I thought, oh, he just he's got this weird hair thing going on. It's just an easy way to be out campaigning and not have the hair blow in all kinds of crazy directions. But it also seemed to to, to have a 
uh, like, oh, I'm a working man guy like you. Oh, yeah. Right? He's got the common touch. <laughs> yeah. Sintra, it has been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It is always edifying and lovely to speak with you. Thank you. Sintra Wilson's most recent book is called Fear and Clothing, Unbuckling American Style. Still to come, what will the next presidency smell like? Fresh juniper and ice red currant brushed with hints of coriander, a masculine combination of rich vetiver, tonka bean, birchwood, and musk. Success, the fragrance by Donald Trump. That's up next in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. Last summer, for the first time, I visited this tiny museum in New York. So tiny, it makes you gasp and chuckle when you first see it. It's barely big enough for you and four close friends. This wonderful place is called Museum. That's spelled with two M's at the beginning and two M's at the end. It's housed in an old elevator shaft lined with these shallow shelves, and on each shelf are small exhibits. Among museum specialties are what scholars call material culture. And when I visited, one particular exhibit caught my attention. This is the audio guide, which you access on your phone. Donald Trump, the message is the medium. America, 2016. It's a collection of objects with the Trump brand. Real Trump cufflinks, Trump aftershave... Trump the board game, a little bottle of Trump vodka. And they're all from the private collection of a guy named Max Abelson. Most politicians are known to voters because of their political experience. But Donald Trump, especially a year ago, he didn't really have any traditional political experience to speak of. Instead, what he had was this sort of history of merchandise. Success by Trump Cologne. The truth of the matter is the collection started small. I think it started with my favorite piece, which is the Trump cologne called Success. Success, which smells of, quote, fresh juniper and iced red currant brushed with hints of coriander, end quote, promises, quote, the spirit of the driven man, end quote, and offers, quote, a masculine combination of rich vetiver, tonka bean, birchwood, and musk, end quote. I wish I knew what success smelled like, but I've never opened it. It's six o'clock in the morning, and Donald Trump is preparing to embark on what he will later confess is a gigantic ego trip, the inaugural flight of the first Trump shuttle from New York to Washington. The Trump shuttle pin is silvery, it's long and thin, and it's got a beautiful red T in the middle that's kind of italicized, so it's moving forward. In 1989, a few weeks after buying Eastern Airlines for $365 million and renaming it after himself, Trump announced that he was going to put together, quote, the best transportation system of any kind in the entire world and would, quote, spend more money and I'll give the people more than they anticipate even, end quote. 
The question arises, is this inaugural flight of the Trump shuttle to the nation's capital symbolic of Trump's political ambitions? No, it's not at all. I think that uh, hopefully somebody's going to be able to take advantage of Japan instead of us being always taken advantage of. I think that uh, I just enjoy what I'm doing. When Trump shuttle flew for the first time that June, waiters in tuxedos served its customers champagne as a string quartet played. Trump reportedly added maple veneer panels and gold-colored lavatory fixtures to the planes before his high debt forced Trump to lose ownership of the company. By 1992, three years after his pledge, Trump shuttle was no longer. Trump Energy Drink On September 20, 2011, a press release from the Trump Organization announced, quote, energy drinks for the Israeli and Palestinian Authority market, end quote, bringing the Trump name to the heart of the politically turbulent Middle East. The can is black with a gold pattern and a huge gold Trump tea. Trump believes in energy. Trump's current wife has said Donald's energy impressed her when they met. Quote, I was struck by his energy. End quote, she has said. Quote, he has an amazing sense of vitality. End quote. When I look at it, the thing that I think about is Jeb Bush. And of course, you know, Jeb Bush was the brother and the son of a U.S. president. He was sort of widely described as the front runner. Trump rode in, and what did he say about Jeb Bush? I think Jeb is a nice person. He's very low energy. I'm not used to that kind of a person. And it was like Jeb Bush's political career was like killed in that moment. It was incredible. It was such a simple insult. Like it's only like two words to call someone low energy, but somehow it's, it's so piercing. Trump is what Trump sells. He's got this ability to use merchandise to really create this image of himself. And I think there are a lot of people in American life who try to do that. But the thing that I think is really kind of dazzling about him, and I don't know if it's positive or negative, is that he's able to do it so successfully. And he was able to do it in real estate and in television, and now, of course, in American politics. That's Max Abelson. You can see the objects in his collection at Studio360.org before they're sent off to the Presidential Museum. So we know Donald Trump likes cologne and other luxurious, classy things. And we know he watches TV when he's on it or produced it. But what do we really know about Donald Trump's artistic appetites, his taste? And on a cultural score, what might we expect from his presidency? I just reported out a story talking to arts leaders about what they think the Trump administration will bring. Jeff Edgers again from the Washington Post. I found a guy at the uh, Indiana Arts Commission. I I want to reach him because, you know, obviously Trump has no record in, in office, but Mike Pence does. And I just said, what was it like being in a state where you're depending on public funding and Mike Pence is in charge? And, you know, maybe he was just playing nice, but he said he was great. I mean, I don't think he understood exactly what, what the NEA was doing at the start because he has a poor record on voting for things that involve the NEA. But he came to our events and, and the guy from Indiana actually sent me a photo of Pence at an event with one of the NEA staff people who had come out and said they got along real well, mentioned that Mike Pence's wife is an arts educator and he was hoping for the best. So 
you know, what am I telling you? I'm telling you that no one knows anything about what's going to happen. Trump clearly has a temper and he reacts to things. And you you just hope that people figure out a way to operate within that world so that you don't have him responding immediately like you did to Hamilton when Pence (laughs) Pence went to that event. Well, and I think we can almost guarantee that some recipient of federal funding is going to make a painting, do a play, perform a concert that is all about the horrible freak fascist that the president of the United States now is going forward. You know, I mean, I I guarantee you that's going to happen and we're going to see tweets and threats to cut government arts funding budgets as a result. Well, it happened. I mean, you know, it happened in New York, right, with Giuliani and, and the Brooklyn Museum. Yeah. And um, they didn't get shut down. No, I mean, they, didn't, they, they, well, they didn't close and New York's culture didn't change. I, I'd, what I'd like to see as someone who's just curious is I'd love to see something emerge out of this that's great and creative and wonderful and unexpected. I don't know what that is. I mean, that's the job of the artist. And you know what? I'd also like to see Trump or Pence or whomever they have in these positions surprise us, you know, and uh, we sort of know what his taste is, according to the, you know, the hotel lobbies. It's very gilded. But um, we don't know what will catch his fancy and what he'll what he'll end up supporting, because in the olden days, uh, like the 90s, I mean, he was mixing and mingling with all sorts of Right. You know, creative forces. I mean, Russell Simmons and, you know, and Howard Stern and all these people. And so I, I do wonder deep down if there's some way to find uh, something creatively amazing that comes out of it. So, as Jeff Edgers says, Trump has lived a certain kind of Manhattan high life for 40 odd years, sometimes mixing with cultural figures if they were famous or happened to be at the same party. But unlike other high-profile rich New Yorkers, he has not been a patron of the arts. So we're kind of clueless about what artists and performers and writers, as president, he's apt to declare... Really terrific. And which ones... Sad and and pathetic. I was talking about that recently with my pal John Heileman. He co-wrote the terrific book Game Change about the 2008 election, and he co-hosted the great Showtime series about the 2016 campaign called The Circus. And he is here now. John, thanks for coming in. Hey, Kurt. So, Barack Obama. (laughs) You're friends with him. He had um, lots and lots of cool A-list musicians uh, perform at the White House. Um, Trump has been struggling to book people for his inauguration. So far, as we record, he has booked the Rockettes, most of the Morbin Tabernacle Choir, and a second-place finisher from America's Got Talent. Now, why is that? You don't consider that the A-list, Kurt? Well, it's a list. I think, you're, I think you're, your East Coast cultural snobbery is showing. No doubt. I mean, let's be fair. Hollywood is democratic. Right. And you think about over our, our lifetimes – Every big Democratic event is filled with A-list celebrities. Every Republican event struggles. You get Lee Greenwood as, you know. But some an inauguration, cut. at least, ought to be different, you right? would You would think. But, you know, this is if – you, if you combine the general Republican uh, lack of affinity with, affiliation with the creative community and with Hollywood, if you combine that general bedrock with the specifics of Trump and the degree to which for many people in the creative he's community. He's beyond the pale. He's beyond the pale. They don't think they are in the not my president crowd. Right. And, and and the notion of them schlepping out to Washington, D.C. to go and perform at this event is, I think, is beyond the pale for a lot of them. And Kiss turned him down. 
Yeah, that seems a little weird, right? You well, think Gene Simmons. If you can't get Gene Simmons, who can you get? Well, when you've lost Gene Simmons. Simmons. <laughs> right, right, right. No, it's – look, I mean I think the, the reality is that Well, like this, Kiss would have performed for a regular – a normal Republican. Kiss would have probably performed for pretty much anyone. Yeah. You would have thought. I mean, yeah. you know. The, no, that the, to me is the litmus test. I know. It's a little it's a little odd, right? But I do think it just speaks to the deep division and, you know, all the obvious things that one right. would say about how strange this presidency is. right. I read recently that uh, at Mar-a-Lago, his club slash home, um, that there's a, a singer and a, and a little band that's there, and he often asks the guy to sing and them to play my way. Did you experience that? No, you're... I did. No, I did, did not experience uh, that. Although, although you know, again, now who's going to really criticize someone for having someone play my way? Yeah, no, it's just it, it's so perfect. It's if you're writing this character in fiction, it's like nah, a little on the nose. Well, as look, I mean, as is the obsession with Citizen Kane, you know, right? I mean, I mean, I mean, there's there's some of his taste is, you know, again, it's a great movie. Yes. I mean, we can't we're not going to knock Citizen Kane, right? But the fact that Donald Trump loves Citizen Kane, it's so on the nose you couldn't put it in the in the film script of this. Let's play uh, a clip of Errol Morris, the great documentarian, was making a documentary about people's beloved movies, and he interviewed Donald Trump. Talking talking about Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane was really about accumulation. And at the end of the accumulation, you see what happens, and it's not necessarily all positive. And I think you learn in Kane that maybe wealth isn't everything, because he had the wealth, but he didn't have the happiness. In real life, I believe that wealth does, in fact, isolate you from other people. I mean... I find that amazing. And I also, by the way, you spent time with him. That sounds like a lot more than 10 years ago. That sounds like a young man who yes. could put sentences together in a clear and uh, you know impeccable way. Yes. Well, and again, I mean, none of those – none of the things that he said in that interview would pass muster as as deep insight. On the other hand, I remember when I saw that – this originally when it surfaced in the course of the campaign and thinking, well, that's – you know, that that's a – Relatable, like he, the things he's saying are not like monstrous or no, horrid. It They're, was humanizing, it's a per- a perfectly, a perfectly humanizing. Like that's a, yes. a, a perfectly natural, not wildly sophisticated, but a perfectly natural like reaction to to this movie. And it's a, yeah. a perfectly kind of sensible read on you yeah. know in a kind of basic way, right? Even as I was, you know, because I had never assumed that he was going to lose, uh, and and thinking about silver linings last fall, I was thinking. Well, if he wins, it will be – it's not worth it, but it would be an incredible opportunity for public protest art of a kind we've seen since – for instance, in Russia over the last five or ten years. Yeah, you know, totally. Our own pussy riot, our own whatevers. Well, and an incredible – I mean, again, we all know, just to state the obvious, that you know, people of color, women – um, the, 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 they are all, all obviously massive contributors to the realm of, of, of art and culture. But those groups in particular that feel particularly uh, uh, disenfranchised in Trump's America, this could be you know, an incredible boost for their right. – their, their voices will be amplified in a way that um, would never have been the case under Hillary Clinton. Well, but, and, yes. And, and, and incited to make a d- very different kind of art than they would have made under, other, under those circumstances that had, had what we all assumed happened was going to happen, happened. And so what kind of art do you think will get made because of the Trump presidency? To me, you know, when when the new Tribe Called Quest album came out, literally on the Friday after the election, um, and it's a brilliant record, and it's so much of of it was driven by what had been happening.
we hate you way. So all you bad folks, you must go. That's a powerful record by a group that hadn't made a record for a really long time. And it was, for a lot of people, it was a communal kind of balm to, like, huddle around the record. It went to number one on the Billboard charts um, on the basis of the number of people who were like, man, Tribe Called Quest is back and this record is really political. Right. And it feels like a record I want to be listening to this weekend after Donald Trump got elected. Right. It will be, uh, I, I think – uh, an interesting moment, and 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 sort of have whatever version of a of a kind of punk reaction yeah. might come about. Well, you make the point. Uh, you make the you, the punk analogy is a great analogy. I mean, now Thatcher and her and her image has been largely uh, rendered uh, kind of much she was considered a much safer figure, and she was never seen in the United States as being as threatening as no. as people on the left in Britain did. But in 1978, 1979, through the early 1980s in Britain, Margaret Thatcher was seen as a almost Trump-like figure in the sense that really big British institutions. Socialized medicine, uh, the national railroads, things that were privatized that had never been in the private hands before, things that people in Britain thought were part of their core national uh, uh, inheritance were now being threatened and in some cases not just threatened but in some cases ripped up and and rebuilt and that was the ferment that gave birth to punk in its original form and so, you know. Let's kick out the Tories, the rulers of this land. The the one other, I mean, again, there's a fairly limited uh, record of what his actual cultural tastes are. One of the bands he reportedly uh, has been very fond of makes total sense, which is Twisted Sister. Do you remember Twisted Sister? Oh, we're not going to take it anymore. Uh, exactly. Yeah, of course, I remember Twisted Perfect Sister. Perfect hit. Title for yeah. John, Donald Trump love seventies Long Island take Jersey glam, oh, glam punk. Take I've wanted to sing on on this radio show for a long time, there you so go. that was the closest I've ever come. Uh, I think that's you know look, I mean it's a it's an anthem. You know it could have, it could have been. I mean, you know, Trump's – one of the weirdest things that the Trump rallies is the music thing. People have commented on this right. all the time and I went to a lot of Trump rallies in 2015 and 2016 and going and hearing, you know, the the strange, you know, Broadway show tunes mixed with songs like Sympathy for the Devil and, Neil Young, and Tiny Dancer. Rocking and, the Free World. Yeah, yeah, I mean just an incredible mix of weird like things, a very weird eclectic kind of mixture of songs. Again, some wildly inappropriate like at a political rally, you can't always get what you want. It's a weird song to play, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, but – that song, you know, we're not going to take it. Could, could have, I mean, could have been the theme song of the entire campaign. No. Um, and I'm in some and ways got, now a got, little surprised it wasn't. And they've got, you know, they had the hair that they have. He's got the hair that he's got. Is that band still alive? I know around. I'd be shocked if not. I would be. Uh, now I'm thinking that we have a solution to the thing we started out with. You know, have them play the yeah. inauguration. Every ball. John Heilman, thank you very much. Kurt, always, and I do mean always, a pleasure. Ready. One of the very few other things we know for sure about the president-elect's cultural passions, he loves Sunset Boulevard, the movie starring Gloria Swanson. You know Sunset Boulevard, about a demented old star who's over the hill. According to one of Trump's biographers, he especially loves this scene. Those idiot producers, those imbeciles, 
Haven't they got any eyes? Have they forgotten what a star looks like? I'll show them. I'll be up there again, so help me. Wouldn't that make a perfect tweet? That's it for today's show. Studio 360 is a co-production of WNYC and PRI, Public Radio International. Our production team includes Jenny Lawton, Andrew Adam Newman, Louis Mitchell, Sam Kim, Skylar Swenson, Tommy Bazarian, Zoe Saunders, Gabriella Cortez. Thanks this week to Krista Ripple, Jackie Harris, and Museum's Alex Kalman. I'm Kurt Anderson. Thanks very much for listening. Everything's set for tonight, Mr. Trump. I wonder what Trump's game is this time. Trump's got a new game. Trump's got a new deal. What's your game, Donald? Trump has a new game. What is it? On the dice, there's a T instead of the number six. And Donald Trump's face is on the money. My new game is Trump. The game. Trump. The game where you deal for everything you ever wanted to own. Because it's not whether you win or lose. It's whether you win. Yes! Play Trump. The game from Milton Bradley. I think you'll like it. PRI Public Radio International. I'm in Studio 360. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. You know about the witches and the munchkins. Follow the yellow brick room. But the land of Oz is stranger than you ever imagined. We'll discover why this American icon continues to inspire countless filmmakers, musicians, and novelists. The Wizard of Oz, next time in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC.